Hey guys, it's Miller. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode, Uproom Dallas Podcast. We continue our Maranatha series, looking at the major covenants. We do part two of the Davidic covenant. I really felt like we needed to talk through the promise made to David specifically that his throne would be established forever and how that ties into Amos 9-11, the prophecy that says David's fallen tent will be rebuilt. It's out of Acts 15. Buckle up, get your notes ready, give you a ton of scripture. Let's go deep together, believing that God has and is restoring David's fallen tent. Thanks for tuning in. We love you. I want to uh, continue our, our series that we've been in called Maranatha. We've been walking through uh, the covenants uh, in the Bible. Has this been a blessing to you? Yes. Okay, good. Um, we've, we've really uh, started pre-creation. Talked about a covenant that God made with God and uh, have looked at several of the major covenants from there. And last week we looked at the Davidic covenant, which um, is one that's probably not as well known as maybe the Mosaic covenant or um, the Abrahamic covenant, but the Davidic covenant actually has significant ramifications for us as a church. And I wanted to do a part two of the Davidic covenant um, and specific one thread that we tapped on, like tapped into last week, but it is so important for us as a community uh, to understand it, it. It really has been foundational for us as a house. And so I want to walk you through that. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at two primary texts, Acts chapter 15, and then we'll, we'll look at First Chronicles 15 and 16. If you have your phones, you can take them out. And I've asked, uh, I've asked the church throughout this series to go into your notes section and just to start a page of notes so that you can look back at what we've been walking through. Um, I, I, I'm, this week proves once again, um, there are cultural narratives that will arise. And if you are not rooted in the biblical narrative, uh, deception is coming. Um, shakings will happen. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Uh, what we saw this week in my lifetime in Europe is unprecedented. It's unprecedented. And uh, I believe that the Bible has things to inform us about moments like this and moments that are coming. And I've used this word Maranatha as a word that kind of sets the framework for us to view the hour that we're in and the things that we're moving into as a people. I believe we're close, if not in the end times. And the Bible has a lot to talk to us about, inform us about when it comes to the end times. And so um, I, as a pastor, just wanted to start a conversation. It's amazing that even though we've been sharing about the Maranatha cry and looking at what is to come, do you know that we have not been in the book of Revelation yet? <laughs> Which is typically what we do. We, we cannonball into the book of Revelation and like one percent of the congregation is like, yeah, I totally get that. Like most of the time there's graphs and charts and there's these phrases and terms. And so my hope in this process has just been to simplify and show a broader narrative of, um, the end time message and the Maranatha theme, Maranatha cry, and look at the things that God has promised men like Abraham, Moses, 
We're looking at the promise to David, but how that informs our faith today to move forward in faith for those promises because the the work of salvation this morning is finished. Like Jesus came, he died on a cross, he paid the price, he accomplished what the Father sent him to do and the work, the finished work of the cross is done, Amen? amen? And we boast in the finished work. There is a lot of revelation right now in the body of Christ about the finished work, about the grace of God, about being new creations. We have one of the best messengers that I know of heralding this message in Peter Lewis and what he's written back to the gospel. It is a profound, profound message that we need to hear over and over and over. We don't graduate beyond the gospel. Amen. Like we don't like, Oh, I've heard that done that. The the gospel for, 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 the ages to come for eternity where our minds will go, can't believe God did that. Can't believe God did that. But the work of salvation and what Jesus accomplished is unto the plan of redemption. And the plan of redemption is not finished. The plan of redemption is still unfolding. Like looking at the crisis just this week, like God's heart is to redeem. God has a plan and he has a plan to redeem every injustice, every act of unrighteousness, every, every uh, evil. It, he will bring justice to these things. The stories that I heard, these pastors crying like <laughs> the God of all hope is our God. And my hope is his, his ability to redeem this. And I believe he's going to use governments. I believe he's going to use uh, nations like our own. And we need to pray as we pray for Ukraine. We need to pray for President Biden. We need to pray for our foreign policy. We need to pray for boldness and courage. And so we, we have an active role to play, to pray, to act, to speak. These times are important, but, but, <laughs> but there are so many voices right now. And so my hope and my heart was to just uplift this one. And uplift what, what does scripture have to say to us that might be different than your Twitter account. It might be different than Instagram and Fox news and this political thing. But if the leaven of the word can get in our hearts and the leaven of the word is the primary influence of our perspective and our words, I believe we're going to be beacons of light in the days ahead. And people are looking for truth. They're looking for truth. And I just, again, believe the Bible has a lot to inform us, to equip us, to empower us, to be voices of truth uh, in the hour ahead, because it's, it's the truth that sets us free. And so uh, I wanted to look once again at the covenant that God made with David. He made an eternal covenant with David. David was a king in Israel around a thousand BC, a thousand years before Jesus. Uh, He is like the hallmark of biblical leadership when you look at a prototype for what a kingly Messiah would look like, David is the picture. And his life has been studied for uh, years, like, and, and should be, as to why is he a man after God's own heart? What made David David? Uh, but there's a revelation that I want to present to you today that, um, quite frankly, has, has not, it just hasn't been given a lot of attention in the body of Christ. I was talking to my wife last night. I was like, why didn't I have felt boards of David's tabernacle when growing up? Uh, When you hear of Moses's tabernacle, everyone in the room, 
If I said, hey, what's Moses' tabernacle? If you've been in the church more than a couple of years, you can probably say Moses' tabernacle was the outer, inner, and holiest of holies. There were three divisions, you know, that the priests had to go in and the goal was not to die when you went in. <laughs> like, you know, we can kind of lay that out. Like as a kid, I could, I could flesh that out for you. And when I heard David's tabernacle, I always associated that with Moses's tabernacle. But there is a distinct difference between David's tabernacle and Moses's tabernacle. And I, I want to I present that to you because last week we talked about the covenant that God made with David. It is an unconditional, eternal covenant. Revelation chapter 22 says that Jesus is the root of David. So that means that Jesus was before David. If you're the root of something, it means you grounded whatever sprung up. And so him being the root of David, he was the source that birthed David's life. And then in Revelation 22, it says he was a descendant of David. So he who rooted David came forth from David. Emoji head blown. Right? And so God makes an eternal covenant that Jesus would fulfill through David's lineage. Jesus is still fulfilling it. And I believe understanding David's tabernacle is primary for us in our hour. And it also informs us of our culture. Um, it, has, it has been... Um, it has been something I've studied as a leader. I, I, felt, I felt for the last 15, 20 years that I was called uh, as a leader to build a culture of prayer in the city of Dallas. I have a long history with it. And David's leadership has informed me of, of how to do that. And, and I'm, not, I'm not like trying to build this exactly, but it's the spirit behind it. And so um, David uh, found favor with God through a vow that he made. And, and when you study David's life, I can't get too deep into this vow, but it's worth knowing. It's Psalms 132. Uh, Psalms 132 is a really important Psalm. Like when you look at the Psalms, if they were a, a, you know, a mountain range, Psalms 132 would be Mount Everest. So in the mountain ranges of the Psalms, Psalms 132 is the highest. We, we, I truly believe that. And it's a vow that David made with the Lord that I'm going to build you a resting place. He probably made it as a shepherd boy, and that's why God anointed him. But I want to show you what that vow built, what that heart, the heart desire of David, how it was expressed when he had the authority to actually fulfill that vow. Because many in the body of Christ are uninformed about what David actually built, meaning the tabernacle of David. And so um, here we go. Everyone just kind of do this. We're going to put our seatbelts on because we're going somewhere. So Second uh, Samuel chapter 7 is where we were last week. Again, you can go back and review all of this. Uh, but David uh, received a covenant from the Lord. And uh, it's Second Samuel. Second Samuel 7, 16 is the vow. There's a number of things to it. But it's that God would give David a house, a kingdom, and a throne. And that his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. Forever. His house is his descendants. His kingdom is his influence or his authority. And his throne is his reign. It's his leadership being central. 
And Jesus would sit on the throne of David. Jesus in the millennial, which is when Jesus returns, he will sit on the throne of David. So, So this points to David, but David points to Jesus. David had a kingdom. When Jesus came, Jesus said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. So you see that David was a prototype of Jesus. David was fulfilling the covenant that God, Jesus was fulfilling the covenant that God made with David. But I want you to see this morning that it's still being fulfilled, both for Jew and Gentile. And so I want to focus on this aspect right here. I want to focus on the last one. And last week we talked a lot about the house. We talked about a lot of the kingdom. But uh, this morning I want to talk about the throne of David, which is ultimately the throne of Jesus. And, And how David, as king, enthroned the Lord in his hour of leadership. And I believe this was his political agenda. Like the political you know, make America great again, Donald Trump mantra. David had one and it is, we're going to put the ark back at the center of all that we do. They had hats, t-shirts, bumper stickers on chariots. And it's like, bring back the ark. That is what they were going for. <laughs> you think they had bumper stickers on chariots? <laughs> but if, if, if he had a political slogan, it's first Chronicles 13, three, it's, we're going to go after the ark for we forsook it in the days of Saul. So we'll get into that in just a second, but, but here, here's, here's why David's tabernacle comes into play because of Acts chapter 15. And that's where we're going to start today. Acts 15. Acts 15 is a very important, uh, conference. It's the first church conference in the church. And it was elders and leaders, and they met in Jerusalem, and they met to discuss one issue. And the issue is, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? So give you a lot of Bible today. I don't apologize for it. This has been a little different flow for Sunday morning in Dallas, Texas. A lot of times the messages are, you know, very point one, two, three, how to... Live your best life today. Um, this is going to be, this is just going to be, it's going to be a little more kind of teachy, classroomy. Um, I'm just going to kind of get into some theology, but I think we need this as a church today, especially these on Sunday night. It, this, I'm doing this, yes, Sunday morning, I'm doing this for you, but my target is our Sunday night crew. This place is filled with 20 somethings, and I'm making them get their phones out, write scriptures down talk about it throughout the week. It's, it's really been powerful. So um, Acts 15, uh, Jerusalem Council, David will come up here. I'll show you that here in just a second. But Gentiles were coming uh, into the church and some Judaizers were saying, hey, that's awesome. They're not under the law, but they're not cut like us and we need to circumcise them. And I think the argument probably was circumcision was before the law. We looked at that in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. Um, that's where God gave circumcision as a sign. And so there was a question, should these guys be circumcised? And I love, uh, we'll, we'll hop in this, uh, Acts 15 verse one. Um, so 
Some men came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So it was a salvation issue. So they were adding to the gospel. Be careful of anyone that does that. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas' brothers should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, elders concerning the issue. Therefore, being sent on their way, the church, they went passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, um, describing in details the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church, apostles, elders. They reported all that God had done. Uh, but some of the sect of Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles, elders came together to look into this matter. Verse seven, this is what I wanna focus on. It says, after there had been much debate. Now, the Bible oftentimes understates. Like these little phrases, you can read by them very quickly, but listen, this was a church meeting. There were elders and leaders who are very opinionated. And this says after there had been much debate. So I don't know if this debate lasted for a day or days. I'm assuming it lasted for days. And I'm assuming there were a lot of opinions, a lot of scriptures. There's a lot presented in a religious debate. People are passionate about this. So after there'd been much debate, I want you to see this. The Bible in all of their debating only highlights three things. Now, whatever these three things are really important for us. And the first is what Peter did. So Peter stands up and Peter, and I I love that we have our own Peter here because Peter basically says, hey, they're saved by faith. Uh, Brethren, you know, in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth of the Gentiles would hear the word gospel and believe. Um, and who knows the heart testified, giving the spirit just seated to us, having no distinctions between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Verse 10 and 11 is it. This is what Peter said. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. So Peter upholds it's grace and grace alone which comes to the proclamation of the gospel. So Peter talks about the proclamation of the gospel. That's 10 and 11. Everyone see that? Peter says, hey, they're saved by us. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word, and it's the proclamation of the gospel. If someone believes by hearing and puts their faith in this message, they are saved. We cannot add anything to the gospel. And then in the next verse, in verse 12, uh, the Bible mentions what Paul and Barnabas say. So it says, the people kept silent and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas. And so Paul and Barnabas were not only relating what had been proclaimed, but Paul and Barnabas were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas not only talk about the proclamation of the gospel, but Paul and Barnabas testify to the demonstration. So this is signs and wonders. So the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of the gospel. This is good, like Bible 101. We should proclaim and demonstrate. It's Jesus's ministry. And then verse 13 is where we get into our Davidic conversation because James, the brother of Jesus, he's the only one that's gonna use an Old Testament scripture to verify that Gentiles can come into the kingdom. And so in verse 13, after they had, they had uh, stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Uh, 
Simon has related how God first concerned himself about talking among the Gentiles, people in the name, and with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. So James could have pointed to dozens of scriptures. There's, there's a law that the Old Testament, and at the time they didn't have the New Testament, so their only basis for theology was the Old Testament. And so they're looking at the prophets to confirm what they're experiencing. And the book of Isaiah would have been a great place for James to have gone. Isaiah, uh, I've, I've got some written down. Isaiah 60, um, verse 3, it says, Gentiles will come to your light. Isaiah 55 says, Gentiles will be your inheritance. Hosea 2.23 says, I will call those who are not my people, my people. I will call those who are not my beloved, my beloved. Those scriptures would have set up very nice in the conversation. But James, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does not use those scriptures. He uses one out of the book of Amos, a small sometimes obscure book that's tucked away in your Bible that's really hard to find. Amos was a farmer who was a prophet. And in Amos 9, it's when he gets into restorative text to people that were very rebellious. He says this, and James actually rephrases it just a little bit. Um, But he says this, after these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Go back. Who's the one doing the rebuilding and the restoring? It's God. God will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. God will rebuild its ruins. God will restore it. Why? So that the rest of mankind Jew and Gentile may seek the Lord. If I could, I would highlight may seek the Lord. I think it's a really important phrase. Um, And the Gentiles who are called by my name. So James uses this in the conversation, Acts 15, to declare, hey, the Gentiles were prophesied by Amos, that they would be able to worship God as we worship God. And so I want to look at this phrase this morning, the tabernacle of David, because I believe if you look back here, um, you look back at what God uh, promised David, I believe all of this represents David's tent. What is David's tent? I believe it's his house. What is David's tent? I believe it's his kingdom. What is David's tent? I believe it's his throne. So I I believe there's a lot in this phrase, David's tent, David's tabernacle. I believe this puts 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the covenant that he made, in play in Acts 15. Okay? So there's a lot to it. But I want to focus specifically on what David built and how that informs us as a church. around worship. So, oh, James, I said proclamation, demonstration. James would be the celebration. It would be a response. That's 
I needed to fill that blank in. So I believe all three of these were hid in Acts 15, the proclamation, the demonstration, but the celebration. And I think this celebration, this last one and David's tabernacle are connected. And I believe they're connected to the end time church. Do you need to put your other seatbelt on? All right. Let's look then at, let's look then at what David built. So, um, again, please take notes, follow me, study this, weigh this. We'll flip over to first Chronicles chapter 15. We're going to look at first Chronicles 15 and 16. Again, in that day, I will rebuild what David's fallen tent. So what was David's tent? This is rule in his reign, but his tent was a specific thing. So the ark of God in first Samuel chapter seven, verse two, uh, it had the ark had been at Kiriath Jiriam for 20 years. And some actually think it could have been there for a hundred years, but it was there for at least uh, 20 years. Um, it was, it was stowed away basically in a barn because people were afraid of it. Um, the, the tabernacle of Moses, which is where the ark should have been, uh, was in Mount Gibeah and the holiest of holies was empty. The ark was not in the holiest of holies. That's a problem. It defines the spiritual state of Israel. That there's a form of God, but no power. There's religious activity, but no relationship. The ark, which represents the presence of God, was tucked away in the back. They didn't know what to do with it. And so God brings this young leader on the scene. David, Saul and David fight. Saul is killed. David is anointed king. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 3, it's a scripture that I quote quite often. David is going to give his MAGA address. And David says this. He says, we're going to go after the ark of God, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. The ark has been stowed in a barn for 20, maybe 100 years. We're going to bring that back to its rightful home, which is Jerusalem. And it's going to be the center of society. So David begins to accomplish that. Uh, later in First Chronicles chapter 13. As he's bringing the uh, ark of God into the city, he builds a new cart. Now, how many of you know God doesn't need a new cart? <laughs> God doesn't need a new strategy. He doesn't need, he's not looking for the latest and greatest. God has prescribed measures for us to walk with him, to engage him. And David uh, was an oversight for him. He had... Um, I think the, the way I, I wrote it down is that David had, David was doing the right thing the wrong way. David was doing the right thing the wrong way. And so uh, the ark gets uh, upset because of the ox. It begins to fall. Uzzah reaches up. Uzzah is killed. And in first Chronicles chapter 13, verse 10, follow me. First Chronicles 13, 10, the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so struck him down because he put his hand on the ark and he died there before the Lord. Then David became angry. So the anger of the Lord broke out against Uzzah. David, who's employing the strategy, he becomes angry because of the Lord's anger. And so verse 12, 
David was afraid of God that day, saying, how can I bring the ark of God home to me? This is the question. I'm not going to write it down. How can I bring the ark of God back to me? I, I believe this was a burning question in his heart. And I believe it should burn in our hearts too. We need as a people to return back to the presence of God. We need it to be central again, once again, in meetings like this. So what David discovers informs us something about God and how to minister to him. And so watch this. This is, this is profound because you're going to see the Maranatha message in here. I'm going to connect a couple of dots. Watch this. So David becomes consumed with this question. How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark, verse 13. David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obedidim, the Gittite. Now, what was Obedidim? Obedidim was a, he was a Gittite. What's a Gittite? A Jew? No. Gittites are Gentiles. So David places the ark in Obed-Edom's home. And look at what happens in verse 14. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And look at what the Lord did. The Lord killed Uzzah with the Philistines. Boils broke out. Plagues broke out. People didn't know what to do with the ark. But in Uzzah's home, look at what happened. The Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Now, can you imagine David frustrated because he had this desire to build the Lord a house. He comes up with a new way to bring the ark in. The anger of the Lord breaks out. A man is dead. There's reproach on his leadership. It's like, we're going after the box again. Who wants to go after the box? Every time we go after the box, someone dies. And yet David's like, you take it. And here's a Gentile who receives the box and it says, God blessed him. Remember the Noahic covenant where Jeff, Japheth would dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth was a Gentile. Shem was a Jew. It's the first prophecy of that redemption. How about Romans eleven eleven That the Gentiles will provoke the who to jealousy. What do you think's happening here? As Obadiah's house is being blessed, David is like, "What is happening? <laughs> this is supposed to be in my house. I know what this brings. This is a picture, I believe, of what happens in the end times. The fullness of Gentiles. And so David." David calls a timeout and for three months, he, he builds a house, he destroys the Philistines, but I believe in his every waking hour, he is trying to figure out how is it that I bring the ark of God to my home? And I want to show you what he found. Can I show you what I, what he found? Cause it's pretty profound. First Chronicles 15, first Chronicles 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God. So we're back in that narrative a place for the ark of God. And he pitched a tent for it. This is David's tent. This is not Moses's tabernacle. Moses's tabernacle is at Gibeah, which is about three miles from Jerusalem. They're making sacrifices daily. There's a holiest of holies, inner court, outer court. They're doing the mosaic thing there. But David pitches a tent on Mount Zion and they start uh, making plans 
to put the ark in this tent. So look at this in verse two. Then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God, but the Levites. It's a new detail. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. The Levites were descendants of Levi. They were priests, unique priests. Um, not going to get too much into Levites. It's worth a study. Uh, but David assembled all of Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark to its place, which he had prepared for it. Uh, hop down to verse uh, 12. He calls all of the chiefs of the Levites and the relatives. And listen to what he said to them. You are the heads of the fathers, households of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives. To me, this word consecration is very important, especially for us. It's just not about worship services and songs and need encounters. It's a life of consecration. And David consecrates the priest. He says, you've got to consecrate yourself. It starts with you individually before anything corporately. Uh, consecrate yourselves, both you and your relatives, that you may bring up the ark of God to the place that I've prepared for it. Uh, because you did not carry it at first, the Lord God made an outburst on us for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So David found an ordinance in how to seek God and create a home for God on the earth, which is Psalms 132. Shut up. My head's about to explode. This is so good. 14. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring the ark uh, to Israel. The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles thereupon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chief Levites. This is who they were to appoint the relatives, the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed He-Man. I wish my name was He-Man. That's a great name. <laughs> He-Man! Uh, and a bunch of other dudes. Uh, and they were, they were gatekeepers. Um, look at verse 19. So the singers, He-Man, Asaph, Ethan were appointed to sound aloud cymbals and bronze. Uh, and then there's others that were, had harps. And then 22, Cheniah, chief of the Levites, was in charge of singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. So there was a level of excellence in the singing. There was training in the singing. Um, look at verse 25. So it was David with the elders and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Ob Obedidim. Um, because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. And in, second, in 1 Samuel's account, it says they, they sacrificed bulls every seven steps. So this is very prophetic of, I see the Via Della Rosa uh, road here, because there would have been, I don't know if it was, if it was a couple of miles, I don't know the exact distance, but if you're, if you're sacrificing a bull every six steps, it's a lot of bulls. There would have been a river of blood flowing down the street as the ark of God is being carried in a river of blood. And the ark is proceeding. Now, David has set this tent up on Mount Zion. David has sent a tent up in Mount Zion and and look at verse 16, one, chapter 16, one. And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent, which David had pitched for it. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. Now, um, when they had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. He distributed to Israel, both men and women, everyone, loaves of bread, portions of meat and raisins. Um, and he appointed some of the Levites before the ark of the Lord to celebrate and to thank and praise the Lord. Asaph came. Um, then in verse seven, then on that day, 
David first assigned Asaph and his relatives to give thanks to the Lord. So he assigned them to give thanks to the Lord. David is going to break out into a psalm. And then the story continues in 37. So David left Asaph and his relatives there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark continually as every day's work required. And look who else gets included, 38, and Obed-Edom and his 68 relatives. Now, Obed-Edom ain't supposed to be in there. But think of Acts 15. Think of Acts 15. Think about the Lord through James by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Amos 9-11. Okay, hold on before we just, even more. So here's one interesting fact. Here's an interesting fact is this day was the last day blood sacrifice was made at day. They no longer offered blood sacrifices at David's tent. David assigned singers and musicians to be in a room. Blood sacrifices would still happen at Moses' tabernacle. Those were happening daily. The feasts were up there, but in David's tent, As the ark came across the threshold, the last peace and blood offering was made. The ark came into David's tent. And David assigned them to give thanks. What is thanks? Thanks is a form of sacrifice. Praise and thanks is a form. So sacrifices were being made. They just weren't blood sacrifices anymore. They were offerings of praise and thanksgiving. Are you seeing the new covenant in this? So... Let me, let me just give you, um, can I have a little extra time? Can y'all not put the, I will, we're going to extend our hands to the childcare workers. I just need an extra 10 minutes, just 10. If you got to go, please go. But look at this. So David, what did David build? What did David practically build? So David built a tent that was an open room. It was just an open room. There were no divisions. It was one room and he set the ark at the center of the room. And he surrounded it with 4,000 singers. Actually, these were musicians. 4,000 musicians and 4,000 gatekeepers and 288 singers. This is all in the Chronicles, you can see this. 288 divided by 12 equals 24. So it was probably in shifts, one hour shifts at 12 singers singing. It was a 24 seven worship center that both Jew and Gentile could enter into. Now David employed them in, think about this business guys. We've got some business guys in here. David employed them. It specifically says what he paid them. Um, David paid them Uh, man, this is so convicting. Uh, David paid them. (laughs) Come on. Like, I didn't mean it that way. I just say, (laughs) but take it as you will. Um, so one talent, one talent.
one talent was about 1,200 ounces. If you got $850 an ounce per gold, one talent would be 1 million. There's a Levite. Um, so one talent of gold would have been worth about a million bucks. So David paid, David paid a hundred thousand talents. It's terrible. David paid a hundred thousand talents of gold. That price would have been in modern day terms. And these are all estimations, hundred billion. You guys can do, I, I, yeah, I got this from Mike Bickle, so blame him. Um, but, and then if you look at the, the silver that was used, I mean, it was, it was well, oh wait, a hundred, sorry, that's not, it's 1 billion. Yeah. Thank you guys. I was, it's 1 billion. It's still a lot, whatever it is. It's a lot of money. All right. Sorry. I, I stepped on my calculation. Um, so he funded them. That's my point. What did he fund them to do? He funded them to sit in a room. He funded them to sit in a room and to minister to the Lord. He funded them to offer praise, thanksgiving and intercession to the Lord. And the, the tabernacle of David, according to my calculations was 33 years. I believe it's prophetic of the life of Christ. So can you put up that graph, the difference between Moses's tabernacle and so Moses's tabernacle had an outer court and furnishings, holy place and furniture. Um, again, the holiest of holies was empty because the ark wasn't there. They had a veil, which meant they did not have access daily animal sacrifices, company of priests, old mosaic, old mosaic ministry and order, few singers and instruments. But look at what David built over here. They had no outer court and furnishings, no holy place and furnishings, but the transfer of the holiest of holies was to his tabernacle. There was no veil in excess available, no veil in excess available, Obadidim there, uh, the ark of the Lord, daily spiritual sacrifices, no more animal sacrifices after dedication, a transferred company of priests, which is a new order of priests, a new Davidic ministry and order, and a great company of musicians and singers. So this was David's tabernacle. And if you compare what David built to Revelation 4 and 5, David built God a living room on the earth. Revelation 4 and 5 is what God chooses to surround himself with. And somehow David had insight. If I'm going to build God a resting place, it's going to look like where he already rests. So here's what's interesting is um, revival hits. Uh, David is the most prosperous king in the history of Israel. Um, he wants to build a house. The Lord says, no, we looked at that last week. So in first Chronicles 17, he just goes and he kicks tail. He destroys Israel's enemies. He expands their borders, economics, uh, social reformation. Everything starts booming for Israel because the ark is at the center. The whole time these Levites are singing and ministering to the Lord. It's very profound. Um, there's seven actual, I call them revivals, but reformations that happen in the old Testament. Uh, all seven of them, I mentioned this last week, but it's worth mentioning again. All seven of them included Davidic worship. Anytime a leader would catch what David caught, God would move on behalf of Israel. Can you just put these scriptures up? I'm not going to read them verbatim, but look, look, 
Oh, so we've got David and Solomon. So those are the first two. Solomon would include singing. I'm not going to include that. But Jehoshaphat's reform included establishing singers and musicians. Um, the Levites stood up, praise the Lord. He appointed those who should sing to the Lord. They came with stringed instruments to the house of the Lord. Jehoda, um, who was a priest, two kings after Jehoshaphat. Um, look at this in Second Chronicles. It says, uh, Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the Levites to offer the burnt offerings with rejoicing and with singing as it was established by who? David. Go to the next one. Um, Hezekiah's revival. Um, I just want you to look at the end of that verse. It says, he stations Levites, stringed instruments, according to the commandment of David. Josiah's revival restored full-time singers and musicians as David commanded. Singers were, uh, last, last line, singers were in their places according to the command of David. Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, similar reformations. These guys did the same things, but look, the Levites to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David. Ezra and Nehemiah, 44, 45 BC, according to the command of David, gatekeepers were in charge. Levites give thanks and singing. So here, here's what I'm saying. Every time God moved in the old Testament, they instituted Davidic worship. Now here, here, here for us, is when Jesus comes on a donkey into Jerusalem and they're shouting Hosanna in the highest, it says the entire city was asking a question, who is this? Where does David turn? To the temple. He walks into the temple. It's the ark walking into the temple. He flips the tables and he makes a declaration. And he makes the declaration because they had a precedent for what it would mean. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. I don't think that he's just pulling that out of random air. I think he's saying, you knew this based on the Davidic order of worship. He's saying, that's my expectation when the ark comes in. I believe it's a blueprint of the New Testament church. Am I to say that we're to do an exact replica? No, it's the spirit in which David caught wind of that. And that's why Psalms 132 is so, 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 so crucial. These resting places, but it's first ministry to him. It's first loving him. It's creating sacred places on the earth that are marked by the holiness of the presence of Jesus. And it has major ramifications in the end times major ramifications for what God's doing. Like what Ukraine needs right now is they need a house of prayer in the center. And I'm sure they have that. They have the praying church, but it is central to political divisions. It is central to, we look at Amos 9, 11, it affects all of society. It affects their economics. It affects their uh, political agendas. It affects how they relate to other nations. It is ultimately the Maranatha cry. And one day, hear me, can you put up? Oh. My heart's tender. Can you just put up Psalms 132, verse 13? It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. This is, this is the vow that David made, but this is the Lord's response. It says, For the Lord has chosen Zion. He desired it for his what? Now, is this David's desire? Is this Abraham's desire? Is this Israel's desire? The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Go to the next verse. This is my resting place, 
forever. Yes. Here I will dwell for I've desired it. What is my point? Is that Jesus Christ, a resurrected Jewish man, seated next to his father, one day will hear these words from his dad. You can go. And he's going to descend from heaven. And he's going to walk through the Sinai desert. He's going to go across, according to Zechariah 14, the Mount of Olives. He's going to go through the eastern gate. And he's going to sit on a throne in the city of Jerusalem. And the earth will be the glory of the Lord. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And David's tent, this idea, David's tabernacle, the reign of Jesus will fulfill Amos 9, 11. Has it been fulfilled? Yes. Is it being fulfilled? Yes. This is why we do morning, noon, and night. This is so foundational to us as a house and a house of prayer. It's why I think cultural Christianity is not going to sustain us in the days ahead. It's not an hour a week injection. And it's not, it's not about morning, noon, and night. It's not about upper room. It's not about the prayer movement. It's about people longing and consumed with this burning desire that my life will be a resting place for you. And I want to run with a company of people that are carrying this as David did. I want you to mark my life. I want you to mark my leadership. I want you to mark, Lord, who I am. It is the pursuit of all that I am. I will face affliction. I will say no to other things. I will say no to the good things. I will say no to, to wonderful things for this one thing. It's the Psalms 27 verse four pursuit. One thing I ask, this is what I desire that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. You know, I, I listened to a Ukrainian pastor yesterday. I listened to him quote Psalms 27 four as there were literally noises of gunfire and bombs going off outside of his door. And he quotes Psalms 27, four. It won't make sense to the milk drinkers, but it makes sense to those that God's calling deep into his heart. It's time for the meat guys. It's time for us to get deep into his heart. But he goes this, he goes, he goes, it says this in Psalms 27, verse 3. It says, though a host of enemies encamps around me, my heart will not fear. And Psalms 27, 4 says, for one thing I ask, this is what I desire, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold his beauty in his temple. He's saying that in the midst of warfare, that it's not deliverance that I need. It's not blessing and prosperity. It's just your beauty. Your beauty is the answer. Your beauty marking me right now is the answer. In famine and feasting, I'm setting this one thing before me. And it's what made David, David. And I believe the restoration of the tabernacle of David, yes, it's about the Gentiles coming in, but it is also about a heart emerging on the earth and in a generation that's going to set this thing before them. And I believe his bullseye this morning is your heart. that He wants to mark you. So here's what I ask. If you've got kids, please go get them. 
but I want us just to linger for a second because I feel like the Lord, there's a holy hijacking that needs to play, take place in some of your lives. A holy hijacking. Where the one thing, the all-consuming, you know, you know in, in Psalms, uh, uh, scripture that Jesus quotes, he says, zeal for your house consumes me. Do you know that scripture? It's, I believe it's Psalm 69. And if you look at it, it says that David's name had become a byword among the socialites, that he was forsaken. He was misunderstood. It was the price that David paid for the zeal of the Lord to consume him, to be misunderstood. Listen, I've been misunderstood most of my ministry. (laughs) That's why I've like, Oh, I found my people. Um, but this thing, it is, it is, it is, it is, it's just unique. It's a forerunner reality. And I believe God is raising them up in the droves right now. This will impact your business. This will impact you if you're running for political office, which I think there's people in this room that are doing that. This will affect your parenting. This will affect your marriage. This becomes the all consuming reality. And my prayer is that you can just like, like, like if this is his zeal, which I happen to have zeal water, it's nice. If his zeal, if he did this to your heart, just this, if that much of his zeal touched your heart in regards to what I'm saying, your life would never be the same. Not even this. I'm just saying, just if he kissed you with it, it's like sticking your finger in a 220 socket. Like it, it fries you. And so up here, I just want us to present ourselves before the Lord. If we can, if you need to go, man, please go. I'm sorry. I took a little longer than usual, but, um, if you could just put your hands before the Lord. And, uh, and God, I'm just asking for your zeal to touch hearts. Lord, disrupt our lives. That's what we're signing up for. We're signing up for you to disrupt our lives. Lord, interrupt our plans. Reorient us, Father. Lord, awaken, awaken love in our hearts. Awaken zeal. Awaken desire, Lord. Awaken I pray, Lord, for your zeal to touch lives, for your zeal. Would you kiss hearts? Would you kiss minds? Would you kiss even even people that are wondering, what do I do with my resources? How do I, Lord, I'm not even saying it has to be fulfilled here, but what are you throwing them into, Lord? Throw us into the deep ends of your heart. Throw us into the deep things, God. Deep cries out to deep. And I pray that you would call your people deeper, oh, Lord. Deeper still, Lord, deeper still, Lord, deeper still, Lord, deeper still. Stir faith in our hearts. Interrupt our plans. Disrupt our schedules. Oh, God, mark us. Kiss us with your zeal today, I pray, in the name of Jesus. Lord, may we be roving tabernacles. Lord, you've put the holiest of holies in us. He is with us. So mark us with this reality, oh God, that we are your temples. We are your tabernacles. Lord, I pray for the would be 
just a, a, a re-anting up of their hearts, a re-anting up, Lord, of their grievances and offenses and things, Lord, that they've just kind of checked out of church. They've checked out of your plans and your purposes. And Father, today I pray that like a clarion call, Lord, would go forth and that you would speak to the core of their being. We just say, awake, awake, O sleeper. This is the day that you would awake and that he would give you eyes to see and ears to hear. That today you wouldn't harden his heart. That you would hear the voice of the Lord speak to you. We just want to align our lives, Lord, to what counts, to what matters. Let us live for eternity. Let us live, Lord, for the ultimate goal. Align our hearts up with your purposes, God. Awaken in us the Maranatha cry, Lord, come. There is coming a day when you're splitting the skies and you're returning. Touch us with that, Jesus, I pray. We bless you, Lord.